0: But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
1: Thank you all. And uh, I know we're a little Bible heavy here this morning. <laughs> the, the church I, uh, I, I served in Northwestern Illinois for six years prior to my call here uh, had a very famous minister who was there almost, almost 40 years and uh, Harold, Harold Patterson, and he kept all of the church's Bibles in the pulpit. So people would ask him, why don't you ever preach on the Bible? And he'd say, I preach on the Bible every single day. So with that, Again, Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It is hard to believe that we've come to the beginning of yet another holiday season, rife with all the joys and stress it entails. Many of us are preparing to connect with family and loved ones this week, for better or worse. (laughs) And I, for one, am looking forward to our community Thanksgiving dinner right here on Thursday and then a blitz of other family obligations as the weekend uh, progresses. But ironically, it's not what happens Thursday that I actually wanna talk about this morning. It's what happens Friday. Who knows what happens Friday? Black Friday. That's it, the so-called Black Friday. And, uh, Um, And this actually was a a very important day each year for my family growing up, and for many of us whose incomes and livelihoods are dependent upon the success or failure of the retail economy. Again, Black Friday is, of course, that day right after Thanksgiving that marks the official beginning of the holiday shopping season that culminates with the days leading up to Christmas. Christmas and is the point at which retailers target for the break-even point on the year. If all goes well, money generated from sales on Black Friday takes companies from the red, owing money, to the black, making money for the rest of the fiscal year. If all goes well. Indeed, in my household growing up, Black Friday was a big deal as my father worked as part of Kmart's upper management, and how much we had to spend on Christmas was directly related to how well the international retailer did from Black Friday on. And even though my personal holiday experience is no longer dependent upon the profit-loss metrics of the retail economy, the Christmas shopping season is still an ever-present force in my life and most of our lives, I would imagine. We are all inundated this time of year with an increasing fervor of consumerism. Not one but two new iPhones have gone on sale recently. My email inbox and television programs are touting deals on new flat-screen televisions, video game systems, three-for-one suit sales at men's warehouse and the like. I might actually take advantage of that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to be a minister and be outdressed consistently by your musician, but that's, that's where, where we find ourselves. <laughs> Malls and local shopping districts are already piping in Christmas music at nauseum. And fake fir trees with lights do little to obscure the real message of the season, buy more stuff. And in our culture, we are awash in stuff, an abundance of products and a sensationalist attempt to find happiness and acceptance through material possessions. Everything, literally everything will be touted as an amazing deal, a must-have, a bargain. $999 is a small price to pay to see the joy on one's face as she opens a new iPhone. But how can you not envy the sharp-looking yuppie family who awakes to find a new Mercedes in their driveway, complete with oversized bone? Yeah, incidentally, I've been around some very wealthy people in my life, and I've never known anyone to wake up to a new car on Christmas morning. <laughs> Has anyone ever done that? <laughs> yes! <laughs> fantastic. Not me, I heard of someone. You heard of someone. <laughs> and there was a bow. <laughs> oh, there was a bow. See, that's fantastic. All right. So, of course, consumerism does drive our economy. In fact... Buying stuff is what the whole capitalist system is based on. And to be sure, the more money flowing through our stores this season, the better for our economy and, in theory, the better for all of us. But we've seen recently the gap between the wealthiest individuals and the rest of us increase over the past decades as highlighted by the recent release of the so-called Paradise Papers. These papers detail the ways in which the economic elite use a complex system of offshore accounts to hide income and build wealth outside of taxable channels. Though much of what the Paradise Papers describe is technically legal, it amounts to little more than state-sanctioned money laundering that only benefits those who need money the least. In fact, based on new calculations only available from the previously unknown data detailed in the papers, which came out a couple weeks ago, we have now determined that the world's richest 1% now controls 50% of the world's wealth. I'm gonna say that again the richest 1% now owns half of all of the wealth on earth. Now, in the United States, this means that wealth inequality, that difference between those in the upper classes versus the rest of us, is greater now than in any time post-slavery. Having just surpassed the period leading up to the market crash in 1929, which started the Great Depression. The average income of the top earners in virtually every industry has quadrupled since 1980. And this is adjusted for inflation. Quadrupled since 1980, going from less than $500,000 a year to over $2 million a year. Again, adjusted for inflation in 2015 dollars, I think. Everyone else's income has stayed virtually the same, fluctuating by 1 or 2% in the same time. And adjusted for inflation since its inception in the Great Depression, the minimum wage is nearly 50% less now than it was when it started. Or, Or in other words, if the national minimum wage would have kept pace, just kept pace with inflation, it would be upwards of $15 an hour, instead of the $7.25 it is currently. Remember trickle-down economics? That conservative rallying cry of the Reagan and Bush administrations that claimed that the more money the wealthy had, the better it was for everybody else. Nice thought, right? Well, we know that's actually the opposite of what actually works. The economy is not based on large-scale investments from wealthy individuals, but rather the daily purchases of folks like you and me. How much we drive to see family over the holidays, what products we buy, what resources we use. It's not coincidence that the states with the highest minimum wage and the highest taxes on millionaires have the strongest economies and the lowest unemployment rates. Now, I'd like to highlight a brief story from my, my own life that helped me appreciate these facts just a little more. And uh, though Jesus told us not to tout your charitable giving, bear with me, there's a point here. <laughs> In the fall of 2011, I was a new minister and newly elected to represent the Central Midwest District on the Board of Trustees of the Unitarian Universalist Association. As a district that my church in Stockton, Illinois, was a part of, and that Bradford Community Church was a part of, and uh, our headquarters at the time were in Boston. And when I when I arrived at headquarters in late October, I think it was uh, over the Halloween weekend of 2011, the 26-person board had a huge docket of business to attend to from approving new congregations into membership in the association, to drafting and reviewing personnel policies, to monitoring then President Peter Morales' performance towards achieving our association's global lens. (coughs) We literally had 40 hours of business on the agenda for the four days we were together. We were scheduled for meetings and committee sessions from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. each night with time for hurried working meals throughout. But despite this overwhelming slate of business, we were taken by the Occupy movement, that movement that had been sweeping the nation, starting with the homeless village that popped up at Wall Street in New York, and then spread to every major metropolis and economic center in the country. Now, given that one of the largest and most visible encampments of the Occupy movement was in Boston's downtown financial district, this was simply something we as a board felt we could not ignore. After a brief discussion, the UUA board was unanimous in our decision to vacate our business for an afternoon and visit the Occupy Boston site, located just blocks, incidentally, from the building where I used to work when I was a technical writer for Boston's financial sector. All wearing bright yellow, standing on the side of love sweatshirts, the 26 of us board members, plus some of the UUA staff and other dedicated UUs walked the roughly mile and a half trek from Beacon Hill down through the duck pond portion of the Boston Common, crossed Tremont Avenue and traversed the financial district to come upon Dewey Square. It's an oddly shaped series of parks nestled between two highways and facing, you guessed it, Boston's Federal Reserve Bank Building, which in turn backs up against Boston's International Stock Exchange. Now the scene there was electric. Tents arranged tightly amongst each other, each with tarps and raised off the wet and very cold soil. It actually snowed while we were there. Wooden walkways allowed wheelchair access through the park despite the dense tent forest. There was a larger-than-life statue of Gandhi and a spirituality tent dedicated to peace and meditation, open to anyone who would politely leave their shoes outside. I would come to learn that this tent and the adjacent chaplaincy tent were the results of our fellow UU clergy, some of whom were deeply connected to the community, offering interfaith Vespers services nightly. It was about midway through our afternoon visit that I met a man named Paul. He was a large man of color, and when I say large, I mean very, very big. He must have weighed well into the 400-pound range, if not more and I shook his massive, meaty hand when he extended it to me. Making conversation, I asked him, how long how long have you been here? He said, a couple of weeks, that's my tent right there, he said, proudly pointing to the little dome across the path from the bench, his bulk consumed. Covered with bright blue plastic tarps, the little cocoon looked barely large enough to fit Paul, let alone all of his earthly possessions. Very nice, I commented, my thoughts drifting to my new house and its complete absence of blue tarp roofing. Well it's all about the love, I said, referencing my shirt as I turned to leave. Wait, wait, he asked, can can you help me? I it now. I've I've spent time working in psychiatric group homes and I've lived in urban areas enough to have been hustled, hassled, cajoled, and guilted by just about every type of person in need one could imagine. I'm used to saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't help you, or no, I don't have any change, or I'm sorry. And like many of us might, I almost never look back as I walk briskly away. I mutter something to myself about our appalling lack of social resources and promise myself I will make it a donation to Habitat for Humanity or the like when I return home. And this was my first, my initial gut reaction to Paul's question. And I mumbled something about how we as the UUA board had taken up a collection to give the Occupy organizers and that we'd be sending someone back tomorrow with supplies. Then I looked down at my bright yellow standing on the side of love shirt and thought about my statement that it's all about the love. And I stopped, turned back to face Paul, and asked him, what do you need? Sweatpants, he said, 5XL. Man, it is getting cold and all I've got are these He lifted the ratty blanket that draped around him to show off his athletic shorts that barely covered his watermelon-sized thighs. Overcome with emotion, shame, really, I said, okay, okay, I'll see what I can do. Having lived in Boston and worked in the area, I I knew that there were a series of discount stores about a 15-minute walk away, so I headed towards downtown crossing, and despite my dismay to find that Filene's basement had been closed nearly as long as I had been gone, I found a Marshalls that thankfully carried sweatpants in their big and tall department. After sifting through what felt like hundreds of pairs and finding only three XLs and the rare four XL, I found the last pair, perhaps in the entire state of Massachusetts. (laughs) of Adidas quintuple extra-large water-resistant fleece-lined sweatpants with an elastic waistband and drawstring for all of $11. (coughs) So quickly I also grabbed what seemed like an especially stretchy pair of four XLs for even less money and headed back towards Dewey Square. There I found Paul sitting right where he had been consuming that park bench. I told him that I got his pants and that if he couldn't use the smaller pair to please find someone in the community who could. His face beamed a gigantic smile, gave me a fist bump with his massive hand, and as I was leaving called after me, it's all about the love. Now I'm not telling this story to make myself sound good, I'm not sounding my own trumpet, though it might sound like it. No, in fact. I, I'm bringing it up because it created in me a great, great shame of what my first reaction was to this question. Simple, simple question. Can you help me? I'm telling the story because it illustrates what our Unitarian Universalist faith has taught for centuries. That everyone's story is worth hearing. And that asking, simply asking, what people feel they need, and trying to provide it is what service is all about. Or to think about it another way, charity is giving money or providing what we want to provide to those in need. True service requires a conversation, a dialogue, a relationship. In engaging Paul, I entered into relationship with him. I might have supported the community at the camp by giving to the Legal Defense Fund and chipping in for the donation of food and other supplies my colleagues would be later providing. But without asking, what do you need? What do you, Paul, need? None of these things would have provided poor Paul's legs with a little extra insulation against the Boston snow. He didn't want my money. He just wanted my help in keeping warm. So in this time of runaway consumerism, this time when crap continues to flow downhill at the same rate money flows up, when we are all encouraged and incited in buying ever more stuff, ever more stuff we don't really need, let us Let us think and ask the most basic question, what do you need? So let's all try to take the time not just to give, but first to ask. Because that is the first step we take towards serving truly, truly on the side of love. And that's what the holiday season, in fact, every season, is really all about. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. May it be so. Blessed be.